Holy Father, we ask that um, You would help us by the Holy Spirit to perceive Jesus as Lord of the church, Savior of the world, hope of the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... So, we started off with Jesus. And we started off with Jesus of Nazareth. We started with Matthew 1.1. And we looked at Jesus in childhood and, and then picked up the story of Jesus immediately following the resurrection. Now what I'm going to do is we start talking about church and hope, which I'm going to kind of weave together in the next two sessions, is jump all the way to the end of the New Testament. That strange, enigmatic book, Revelation. We don't know who wrote it. I mean, John was as common a name then as John is today. I think most scholars think this. It's not the son of Zebedee. The language is nothing like the language of the Gospel of John or the Epistles of John the Elder. Though it, though it may be an Ephesus-based community, so it may come from someone who was of that community. That's possible. Probably. But what is this book? Well, it, it is strange. It's particularly strange for us. We're so far removed from it. Uh, if you've done any study, you'll you know, immediately be told that it's in the genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature. That's true enough. There's other things going on, though. In the simplest analysis, the book of Revelation is a critique of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the beast. The Roman Empire is depicted in various ways. It's, it's Roma, you know, the stately goddess that is the personification of Rome. The goddess of Roma with her regal robes, depicted as a drunken prostitute. That would be just as edgy as someone taking the American Statue of Liberty and portraying her as a drunken prostitute. There's no wonder this guy ends up, you know, on a prison island. He's poking the bear. He's poking the beast. John, uh, uh, the, the Revelation is, it's probably written during the reign of Domitian in the 90s, which was not particularly a time of persecution. You'll often hear people say, oh, it was written to persecuted Christians. It's making allusion to it, because I think it's using a, a literary device of being composed in the 90s, but addressing the tumultuous events of the 60s and 70s, giving a prophetic interpretation of those tumultuous events of the 60s and 70s, the most significant for readers of Scripture would have been the destruction of Jerusalem, but it's also the time of Nero and uh, the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. All of that kind of stuff is going on. And I think that the writers will be back on that, giving a prophetic interpretation of that. At the time of Domitian, things have kind of settled down, and you're having a sudden huge Gentile influx into the church. And many of these are Roman citizens. And I think John is concerned that they will forget that the Roman Empire is an eternal uh, rival to the kingdom of Christ. He is afraid that they will begin to try to conflate the interests of Rome with the interests of Christ and people will think they are compatible. So he goes to great length to say, oh, no, 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 no. You might as well just have 666 tattooed on your head and don't leave that way. That's the numerical value of Caesar Nero. And you get to the end of the book and it find, you find out that the saints have the name of Christ on their forehead. It's all simple. It's all simple. Keep that in mind about the book of Revelation. It's all simple. All of it. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to say, okay, you like Godzilla kind of monster coming up out of the sea with seven heads like in a Japanese movie. No, I think that's simple. But Jesus on a flying white horse. 
killing 200 million people with a sword in his mouth. Yeah, I think that's literal. <laughs> no, it's all symbol. It's all symbol. It's a critique of the prophetic, a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire, a prophetic interpretation of the tumultuous events of the 60s and 70s, and the offering of a prophetic hope of the ultimate triumph of Christ and his church. That's what the book of Revelation is. Yes, it does employ Jewish apocalyptic style. And, and it's interesting, almost all of the images, and there are hundreds if not thousands of images in the book, um, most of them are recycled. They're, they're drawn from Genesis, Exodus, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, a lot from Zechariah, Malachi. But then they get exaggerated. He exaggerates them. It's in the form of a prophetic political cartoon or things that are exaggerated. So it is in Jewish apocalyptic literature genre, but it also seems to me that it's also drawing upon the genre of the Greco-Roman theater. And that you can see in this book, you can see drama, tragedy, comedy, chorus. For example, after the preliminary addresses to the seven churches, uh, we get underway with this fantastic vision. And John the Revelator, that's what we'll call him, John the Revelator, or John of Patmos, is uh, caught up into the heavens. And he encounters the one who sits upon the throne. And the one who sits upon the throne has a scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. The scroll seems to be uh, that, 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 to, that to read the words of the scroll is to bring about God's good purposes for humanity. The book of Genesis is novel in its approach to understanding creation. Not that it is novel in giving an idea of how creation came about. Nearly all ancient religions have their creation myths. But they are all similar in that creation, and thus matter, is the result of a conflict between good and evil. This is the epic of Gilgamesh and all the rest. They're all the same. I mean, they're different, but they all have the same idea that matter is the result of you know, good and evil. Cosmic forces clash and matter came about. Genesis is unique in that the Jewish view is that creation and matter come from the sheer goodness of God. And that's why that's so emphasized. First day it's good, second day it's good, third day it's good twice, fourth day it's good, fifth day it's good, sixth day it's good, seventh day it's all very good. <laughs> I mean, they're hammering home the point. There was not a conflict between good and evil. This course later creates one of the greatest theological problems for Christians. And that is, what is the nature of evil? Where does evil come from? I think you have to ultimately regard evil as non-being. It's, it's nothing, but it's present, but it doesn't have ontological existence. So if you think of a beautiful garment that has a hole in it, you can see the hole, you can point out the hole, you can say, look, i got a hole. There's this beautiful garment, but there's a hole in it. But what is a hole? A hole is not being. It's nothing. It's just, it's a marring of the fabric of goodness. So evil is a problem, but it's not an entity. It's just, it's a parasite upon goodness. So it's not a parasite, that makes it a being. No, it's just, it is somehow the negation of goodness. So... The one upon the throne has a scroll that unleashes the ultimate goodness in God's vision for humanity. But no one is found worthy to break the seals and make the proclamation. Drama. Now we're in the drama. Where we're looking for someone. We, we, there is a purpose. We're not nihilists. God has a purpose. There is a plan. There is a purpose for humanity, for human existence, for the world. There is a purpose. Drama. 
We've got to find somebody that can install this plan, someone worthy to bring this about. Who can bring it about? You know, maybe it's Abraham, maybe it's Moses. No, there's no one worthy. Okay, now, now we've moved to tragedy. And John is weeping. I mean, tell me a more depressing thought than the idea that the way the world has been is the way it must be forever. So now we move from drama to tragedy. That, that it's hopeless. The world can't change. That we've reached an impasse. We've come to a dead end. No one is worthy. And John is weak. But then, the elder, escorting John, says, wait, 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 look! The lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. The lion has been, there's a lion, a king, from the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. The lion is worthy. Look, behold, look, a lion. And he looks. And there's no lion. It's a lamb. It's comedy. It's a joke. When people tell you that, that uh, Christ is the lion and the lamb. No, they don't know what they're talking about. There is no lion. There is no lion in the book of Revelation. There is a joke about a lion. If you and I are walking in Tanzania, in the Nguru Nguru uh, preserve that we've been at, we're walking through there. And I go, look, a lion. And you look. But I'm pointing at a little lamb. You go, ha, 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 a little joke there. <laughs> look. The lion. But when he, when he looks... It's a lamb, it's, and it's a little, it's a lambkin, it's a little tiny lamb, and it's a lamb that has been slaughtered, but is not dead, or has been dead, and is alive again, because it's standing. It's a little slaughtered lamb raised again. And one way of understanding what happens throughout the course of the wild ride that is the book of Revelation is you have all these bees, these bees coming up out of the sea, really drawn from Daniel originally. That are defeated by this little... I mean, it, it's a little lamb defeating Godzilla. As a lamb. So that's the comedy. And then when all of that is seen, what happens? They break into song and they're singing this, the chorus. Worthy is a lamb. And they break into song. So it's all there. Drama, tragedy, comedy, and chorus. I think that the book of Revelation can be somewhat successfully interpreted. I think our best interpreters are Richard Bauckham. Theology of Revelation, I think. Uh, uh, who wrote the book, Reading Revelation Responsibly? What's his name? Michael Gorman. Michael Gorman does an excellent job. Eugene Peterson in, uh, in Reverse Thunder. And he writes in his little Revelation for Everyone. And if I do say so myself, I like the three chapters on Revelation in Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Um, but I don't think we can ever get to all of it. I think some of the symbols are probably lost to us. Imagine, and I have it, this, uh, this is what I have to draw upon. Imagine some, imagine a political cartoon. A political cartoon from America. Where you have a donkey and an elephant but they're standing on their hind legs. They're wearing boxing gloves. Uh, maybe the elephant has a tricorn hat on, maybe a tea bag hanging from it. Um, I don't know. But, so, and they're fighting. Now, you probably, even all the way out here, Zealand, no. Okay, this has some. This is a political commentary on the fractious nature between the two dominant political parties in America: the Republicans, represented by the elephant, and the donkeys, represented by the Democrats, represented by the donkey. Now, imagine someone two thousand years from now, who all they know about America is a paragraph in a history book they read in eighth grade. They can't name any president. There was that one guy, though, that's the name of the Capitol. 
Washington or something like that. Um, that's all they know. And then you show them that political cartoon and said, this has significant meaning in Well, they'll come up with something you can make them. But it won't be correct because they're, they, they're too distant from... I think, I think there are a few images like that that we probably... It's, if we're just not living in that time and know the subtle hints and the clues and the inside jokes, we probably don't get to. But we certainly get the overarching message. And the message is that the Roman Empire is a beast. That it is in collusion with the Satan. The dragon. There is always, empires always have a propaganda arm. They lie um, about themselves and their intentions. This is a false prophet. The book of Revelation is about the Roman Empire, but it speaks to all empires throughout all time. It's not about us, but it is for us if we can interpret it correctly. Um, the Bible maintains a sustained critique of empire from Genesis to Revelation. It's a little bit in Genesis, it's a whole lot in Exodus. It pops up in the prophets. All the prophets, but especially the major prophets. It's in, it's in the Gospels, pretty pronounced. It's in Acts very clearly. It shows up in Paul a lot, and then it reaches a grand culmination in Revelation. Empire. What do we mean by empire? I'm not just throwing around an empty term. Empires, which in the Bible, we're talking about Egypt. We're talking about Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then it continues, and the trajectory continues into our contemporary situation. Empires are rich, powerful nations who believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda. Those are empires. God likes nations. God doesn't want there to be just a bland sameness that covers the globe. That's, that's one of the things I don't, I don't like it when I see McDonald's and KFCs and Burger Kings when I go away from home. I'm not opposed to them, but I don't want to see them there. Take me to, take me to your stuff. Um, God likes nations with their ethnicities, their cultures, their languages, their diversities. God does not like empires. God does not like empires. Because what empires claim for themselves, that is, that they have a divine right to rule other nations... And a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda is an impingement upon the sovereignty of God. In fact, what, na- what empires claim for themselves is the very thing that God has promised to His Son. So, in the current context of the United States of America, America is a behemoth. It is so large, so pervasive, so touching the rest of the world, that America is not one thing, it is four things. America is a nation, a culture, an empire, a religion. As a nation and culture, America is a mixed bag. But there is much to be celebrated. There's much that's admirable about the nation of America. And the culture of America, because America is not just a nation. It's a global culture. That is a mixed bag. There's much to critique, but there's much also that is admirable and commendable. Then you move on to empire. Okay, that's when, that's when now, and others have done, I mean, you just back it up, you know, the British Empire did it for a long time, they're not an empire anymore, they don't know it quite yet, but some of them do. <laughs> but it's a good thing to get over. My favorite places to travel are former empires that have this um, faded glory, this noble decay about them. And they're no longer trying to be number one and rule the world. I love going to Portugal. You know, it was, a, it was an empire for a brief stint. They were the first out of the gate in the age of exploration. They had some time of doing that, but it, it didn't last all that long. And so now they're not, you know, when you're, when you're struck around going, we're number one, we're number one. There's a lot of pressure. You've got to keep that all <laughs> You know, and Portugal's more like, we're number... 
37 or 38, I can never remember. Well, then you can just get about the business of life. Let's drink some wine, have a meal. Let's enjoy life. So, America is an empire, most of the world, and it is religion. That I can't gauge whether you can understand that or not from your vantage point, but it is. I mean, complete with canonical texts, with saints, with pilgrimages and holy places, with holy days, holidays, holy days, uh, creation myths, saviors, on and on it goes. I don't know if you know this, if you go in the Capitol, the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., the Capitol building, you look up at the dome, what you see is a picture of heaven very much like what you would... In fact, the artist, before he was commissioned to paint the Capitol Rotunda, had done work in the Vatican. And he simply took the familiar scene of Christ seated in glory and changed Christ to George Washington. <laughs> and the name of the painting is the Apotheosis of Washington. That's the actual name of it. Apotheosis, to make a God of. The deification of Washington. And he's seated in clouds of glory with others around him, looking down at the room. Uh, it's a religion. And the, the, I don't spend much time on this because this doesn't pertain to you, but I just want to tell you. The greatest challenge facing American pastors today is that we are trying to make disciples of people who are already thoroughly discipled into a rival religion and don't know it. It's enough just to exhaust you. So, the book of Revelation anticipates all this, sees it, and is mounting a critique of it and the alternative of it. And so you go on this wild ride through the book. But let's jump all the way to the end, because this is where we get the clearest vision, or one of the clearest visions of the church and hope and that sort of thing. Um... Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. Why is the sea? Now remember, this is all symbol because you know you guys are going to go like, what? No beach? We can't go to the ocean? It's all symbol. And the sea, is, um, the sea is the source of evil. This is where evil comes from. All the monsters and beasts come up out of the sea. And so it's a vision of eradicating the origin of evil. Um, the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. There's two metaphors going on here. Um, believe me, John of Patmos never heard the literary rule of not having mixed metaphors. Man, he just mixes this. No, I'm going to mix them all. The Bible tells me it's ten of them. I don't care. And so we have the church portrayed both as the bride of Christ and the new Jerusalem. So it's, it's a metaphor of place and also a, a metaphor of, of um, person, the bride of Christ. And I saw the holy city, there's a city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be His peoples. And God Himself will be with them and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. What we find at the end of the Bible is not a picture of heaven, but of a renewed earth. It's heaven coming to earth. Not us going to heaven, but heaven coming to earth. Uh, the big story the Bible, the big story the Bible tells, uh, doesn't end with people going from heaven to earth, but with heaven coming to earth and being celebrated as a great wedding. Heaven finally breaks into earth through the work of Christ and restores all things. Let's let's take a moment though and think about the, the big because I started the big story that the Bible tells earlier, the first section where I'm talking about maybe it was this one. Where I talk about how the, the, the creation story that gives that's given to us by the Hebrew people is that it all comes out of sheer goodness. There's no mixture of evil. But then, then evil does show up. We're not, it's not accounted for, but somehow it's there. It's slithered. And uh, 
goes wrong. It's hard for me to completely understand that whole story. Something goes wrong. And they, they, they reach out and take that which was forbidden, knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And they're driven out of paradise. Driven out of paradise. They can't come back. They're out of paradise and now they have to begin their life outside the gates of paradise. So Adam and Eve start their family. Their first son is Cain. Their second son is Abel. Cain is a tiller of the ground. Abel is a keeper of sheep. It is through harnessing agriculture that civilization begins to rise. As human beings figure out, you know, they don't have to just you know, follow the flocks and herds and, and uh, forage, gather berries and things like that. We actually have a scientific breakthrough. We can figure out how agriculture works and we can stay right here. And then you begin to build more and more sophisticated societies. First began to happen in Mesopotamia. Similar thing about happened in the Indus Valley in India around the same time. Egypt. And so uh, this, this gives rise to sophisticated advanced civilization, division of labor, that sort of thing. But it creates conflict with the with the still nomadic peoples. And the anthropologists will tell you there was conflict between the agrarian societies and the nomadic societies. Well, we're told that Cain and Abel come into conflict, and there's a lot of other stuff going on there too about what is acceptable sacrifice and Abel about that and all that. But the thing is they come into a while with these two brothers, Cain and Abel. And in a field, because it probably had to do with land, Cain rises up against his brother and kills him. So now the first, the first, as the story is told, the first human born uh, is now a murderer. And he murders his brother. And he hides the body. God comes and says, hey, where's your brother? I mean, really, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, I, am I a shepherd of my brother like he's a shepherd of his sneaky sheep? Am I, am, I, am I responsible for my brother? I hope we know the answer to that question. Um, well, what Cain had done is Cain had lied. Before he lied to God, he lied to himself. Abel is his brother, but he says, no, nah, you know, technically, but really he's other. In fact, he's enemy. In fact, he's standing in between me and my progress. I mean, it's manifest destiny. I'm supposed to have this land, not him. He's benighted. I'm enlightened. And so he lies to himself and then hides the body. Because that's what we do. We hide the bodies. We hide the bodies behind myths and monuments and memorials and anthems. Flags are great for hiding bodies. But God says, no, I, I saw it all. I still hear it all. Uh, you're caught. You're red-handed. He says, but, and I'm going to, you're going to be a wanderer. You're going to be an exile, man. You're going to wander. But there'll be a mark of mercy upon you, not judgment, mercy. No one can murder you. Or else there'll be a sevenfold uh, retaliation. And so what does he do? He moves east of Eden. Okay, we're moving east of Eden. We've gone out east. Now we're going further east. We're going way east of Eden. And what does he do? He goes to the first city. What is the Bible? The Bible's trying to show us the origin of Eden. But the first city is built by one who murders his brother and lies to himself and God about it. And that's the foundation for human civilization. He builds the first city. Um, this continues for a few generations until you reach the point where you get this guy named Lamech. And Lamech comes up with his little limerick. It's pretty, not very good, actually. He says, I have killed a man. For striking me. I have slain a young man for. I can't even what it is. It's Hebrew parallelism for slapping me. If, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, Lamech's vengeance is 70 times seven. See, the original 70 times seven is not Jesus in Matthew, it's Lamech in Genesis saying, Oh, yeah, my vengeance is 70 times seven. 
You come with you, you come at me, you're gonna get seventy times seven vengeance on you. And Jesus is gonna take that reverse that. But what we now see is an exponential rise in violence. So that now the central figure at this particular moment is Lamech, who's an out of control violence man. Violent man. And finally, God sees, God regrets. This is the way the story is told. I'm being honest to the text. I'll let you, if you're all grown up, you can work with it the best you can. But this is the text as it is. God sees. Now, when we talk about the sin in the days of Noah, we imagine all kinds of lurid sins. You know, rated M for mature audiences. But the only sin that's ever mentioned is violence, and it's mentioned twice. The only sin that's mentioned is violence. We imagine other things, but it's not mentioned. The only sin that's mentioned is violence. And God sees the violence and says, oh, that's not good. That's not good. I regret even getting this project underway. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Noah, he looks okay. I'll get him and his wife, sons and daughters, sons and wives. Get a boat for them. And now all the rest of this is violent, so I'll kill them all. <laughs> this, the way the story is told is God attempting to solve the problem of violence by violence. This is the way the story is told. I'm not saying, just, that's the text. That's how it's told. I mean, God sees the problem of violence. He's disturbed by the problem of violence. He regrets that it's come to this. And so God says, I've got to solve the problem of violence. How am I going to do it with violence? Which is, by the way, how most of us still think today. There's bad guys out there. What do you do? I think we should kill them. <laughs> and so the world is drowned and it doesn't work right we're back at Babel and it, it didn't solve the problem it didn't solve the problem and so now the real problem the real project of redemption begins with Abraham this is see the temptation to violence is that it's so it's a shortcut solve it like that we'll just kill all the bad guys well what could be simpler World full of evil will kill the bad guys. Except it doesn't work. We think it works, but it doesn't work. And so God says, okay, I'm just going to call a man, and instead of him, instead of him killing the bad guys, his project is going to be have a family. This is going to be a lot slower. This is what this is the story about it. It finally culminates in Jesus. From that whole long it's a long story. I mean, it's a long story. You see, the Old Testament, and by the way, Old Testament is the proper term for Christians. That's the more respectful term. The Hebrew Bible is the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is the Christian reading of the Hebrew Bible. I'm completely comfortable with saying to the Jewish people, you, of course, it's your text. You can read the Bible as Jewish people. That's the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is how we as Christians appropriating your text read it. Because we read it differently. Well, the Old Testament is a book in search of an ending. I mean, there isn't an ending. Just look at it. And, it's, it's like, and then Jesus comes. And Jesus fulfills this. But, so Abraham, what, what did Abraham do? Abraham was, we're told, Abraham and the Hebrews were told, Abraham was looking for a city. What city was he looking for? What was it built yet? He was looking for a city whose architect is God. Because all he saw were cities that followed the same tired architectural design as Cain. Kill your enemies. They're your brothers. Call them mothers. Call them enemies. Tell yourself it had to be done. Go ahead. Steal the land. Kill the enemies. Lie to yourself and God about it. Pretend that everything is okay. Repeat. That's human history. Abraham is saying, there's got to be a better way. And he's looking for it. He's looking for it. He doesn't find it. He sees it in a distance. He doesn't find it. Because who is the one? Who is the architect who is going to build the city of God? It's Jesus. Who will not shed the blood of his enemies, but will allow his own blood to be shed. You see that in the book of Revelation, where Jesus goes into battle, but he's already drenched in blood. His own blood. And he wages war. Yes, he wages war with what? A sword in his hand or a sword in his mouth? Are you going to literalize that? She's going to run. <laughs> <laughs> the 
Only 19,999,000 to go. No. Here, I think of it like this. I am one who has been slain by the word of the white horse rider and then raised the newness of life. Washed my robe in his blood and now I'm being invited into the city that he's yeah. The book of Revelation, we're talking about church, no? The book of Revelation is, ends with, with us finding what Abraham was looking for. Yeah. The city, Abraham's city. It's twin metaphors. A metaphor of places, the kingdom that comes as New Jerusalem. It's interesting that the, we're given the dimensions of the city. 1200 stadia, 1400 miles, what is that significant? It's the, I mean, if you just know, they go, oh, I see what he's doing. It's the same dimensions as the Roman Empire. And so, John sees coming from the heavens, coming to earth, everything's set on earth, but it's coming to earth. An empire from the heavens that will replace the Roman Empire. Now it's going to come amidst conflict. There's going to be resistance. But it's still it's going to come. It's going to come in a different way than the kingdoms of this world come. But it's going to come. Um, end time teachers. You know, the, the, the TV versions of them. End time prophecy teachers gain their audience by... A sensationalized, hyperviolent future. But Jesus calls us to a faithful and responsible present. Um, well, let, let, let me read another passage here. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is Revelation 22. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life. Footnote. Because there are textual variants. Most manuscripts say the tree of life. But a few other texts say tree of the Lamb. Which I like. I like just putting them together. That, that, that somewhere along the way, it took a turn with a textual variant, tree of life becomes tree of lamb. Somebody trying to really make the point, in case you missed it, that the tree of the life, the tree of life is the cross. The tree of life is the cross. On either side of the river is the tree of life, tree of the lamb, with its 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Um, much of Revelation 21 and 22 is adapted from Ezekiel 40 through 48. Ezekiel was a prophet, a Hebrew prophet in Babylon during the period of exile. His ministry spans a period of time before the beginning of rebuilding the second temple. So the temple doesn't but he's now free to imagine what the temple might be like. Isaiah does Isaiah of, of the exile does the same thing. And remember, he's the one that floats the idea. Well, what if it's, a, what if it's a, a house of prayer for all nations? All going, all Gentiles. Now, as it, as it played out, as it played out, Ezra and Nehemiah were not down with that. No, we're not doing that. The conservative voice went out. But Jesus then echoes that hope that Isaiah had had in his protest of the temple. Indicating that the temple age was coming to an end. That's what the Olivet Discourse is about. It's about the end of the temple age and a new kind of temple. So, Isaiah says, what if it's a, what if it's a, a house of prayer for all nations? It's not, it's not realized until we get to Christ and the new kind of temple made of living stone. Ezekiel sees, he has this kind of this fantastic view of this sort of mystical temple that, that out of this temple there, there flows a little trickle of water. And it flows down the steps toward the west and toward the south, toward the Dead Sea actually. But as it flows, it gets 
it, it increases. It gets deeper and wider. Did anybody in New Zealand ever grow up singing that Sunday school song, Deep and Wide, Deep and Wide? It's found down, flowing deep and wide. This is where it comes from. And it, you have to think of it as like a cartoon. So, so you've seen this flowing, it's getting wet, and it hits the desert, and everywhere it goes. All of a sudden, it's green and flourishing, the trees, trees are popping up everywhere it goes. And, and, and it's got 12 kinds of fruit. The tree with not one kind, of 12 kinds of fruit. All these kinds of fruit. And then it hits the Dead Sea, the lowest point on earth, the lowest moral ebb of the planet. It hits it, and the Dead Sea is no longer dead. It's healed. And now people are fishing. This is the vision that Ezekiel has that John of Patmos borrows and says, Yeah, man, that's what Jesus is doing through his church. The church is going to be that. So, Revelation is John's apocalyptic vision of the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. It's it's the ongoing unfolding of Easter. The biggest mistake people make about uh, the end of Revelation is to think it's about going to heaven. No, the scene is set entirely upon earth. It's about heaven coming to earth. And it's not even entirely future. It's a vision that is in the process of becoming. One of the most remarkable things in the book of Revelation is that the Revelation clearly sets forth this global movement. And eventually starts talking about the number of believers is... Myriads upon myriads. It just counts. And yet probably in the time of Domitian, the Christian population of the Roman Empire was no more than 10,000. 8 to 10,000. So it's not a huge movement, but it is foreseen. It is anticipated. And so you have this city, and it's also a bride, it's a mixed metaphor, that's the same size as the Roman Empire, coming down from the heavens. It's like a jasper. It's clear as crystal because there's nothing to hide. It has a foundation of 12 different precious gemstones, just like the breastplate of the high priest. It's a city that has the breastplate of the high priest with its 12 stones. Because we've already been told this is a kingdom of priests, not kings and priests. Kind of a misleading King James translation. So then, then you have you had pastors, you know, some of you heard this about well, there's kings and there's priests. You know, the priests are like the pastor guys, but the kings are like the business guys. No, it's no, no, no. It's not kings and priests. It is a kingdom of priests. That is a continuation of what was began with Moses and the chosen people. That we would be a priest. To the nations, that God's people would be a priestly nation, a royal nation, a chosen people, all of that out of out of First Peter, that kind of language. And so uh, it's 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 a priest, it's a bride, it's a city, it's all these metaphors, uh, wife of the lamb, it's the church. Um, New Jerusalem is not a vision of heaven. It's, it's, it's surprising how little the Bible talks about heaven, the interim state between death and resurrection. If you ask people, what, what, what do you know about heaven? Well, pearly gates. No, that's, that's New Jerusalem. Well, Golden City. No, that's New Jerusalem. We know very little. Paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's, a, it's paradise. But it's not the end. It's, you know... There's life after death, and there's life after life after death. Life after death, and then life after life after death. Resurrection. And the trajectory of the church is to move toward that which is to come. Apocatastasis, the restoration of all things. And so, the new Jerusalem is not a vision of the heavens, but an idealized vision of the church. Um... In the vision of the New Jerusalem, we have an idealized vision of the church. The idealized vision of the church has never been realized. I, I find strange comfort in the fact that there's never been a golden age of the church. Yeah. That brings me comfort in the present moment. I go, oh, the church is a mess. But then again, it's always been. <laughs> so, nothing different about that. 
somehow we get on with the task one way or the other. Um, here it's called New Jerusalem. And the nations walk by its light. It is the light of the world. It is a city set upon a hill. It is the moral conscience of the world. Uh, where the least of these are valued as representations and appearances of Christ. Uh, New Jerusalem cannot serve the self-interest of Rome or any other empire. There is no temple there because the church doesn't have a supreme temple any particular place. We are temples of living stone everywhere. Amen. Um, We don't have a temple. We are the temple. And the, and the city doesn't exist for its own happiness. It exists for the salvation and the nations that are still outside the city. Uh, and the church is not an end in itself. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we are to be a city of refuge. And so, you have this city that has walls. So it has definition. It's not everything but it's present in the world. It has gates. The gates are not to keep people out, but to direct people in, because the gates are never shut. That's an important point. There are gates. There's walls because there's definition. But there are gates that allow people to enter in. But the gates are, the gates are not to be for the purpose of restriction, but rather for invitation, because the gates are never shut. So in the closing chapters of the Bible the lost Garden of Eden and Abraham's sought-after city are combined in the garden metropolis of the Lamb. The arrival of New Jerusalem is celebrated as a great wedding. Just as Jesus began His ministry at the wedding in Cana, now the ascended Christ presides over the marriage of heaven and earth. The tragic divorce between heaven and earth is now reconciled by the Lamb. And today, every local church is to be a kind of suburb of the new Jerusalem. And so we see how Revelation presents its readers then and now with a stark choice, the way of the beast or the way of the lamb. I mean, the way the Bible kind of ends is you have this glorious city, but the whole tale has not been told because we're so that outside the city there's this lake of fire in which you will find the beast, the dragon, the false prophet, all having to do with images of empire. And people are out there. But it doesn't seem to be a, well, it clearly is not a unchangeable circumstance. Because from within the city there comes an invitation. Hey, are you thirsty? Well, I'm in a lake of fire. Well, you don't have to stay there, you know. You can come on in. The city doesn't try to enforce itself upon the lake of fire. The city is just there. What is the church? The church is the world as believing in Christ. That's Eve's concourse. The church is the world as believing in Christ. So the church is here. The church doesn't try to enforce us. This is the failed project of Christendom. We don't try to enforce it upon But we invite. Are you thirsty? Is it not working out for you? Come on in here. We got like a whole river of crystal clear water. Yeah, it's free. Just change your clothes and come on in. We'll provide you the clothes. Just change your clothes. They'll be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Your sins are forgiven. Come and be a part of what is happening here. So that's what we're doing. That's the vision. That's way better than Hal Lindsey's project. <laughs> where, where they are in a very ham-handed, clumsy way. Bouncing bef- between symbol and literalism and, and making it all future. Rather than, no, this is a glorious vision that is ever unfolding, that we are participating in, that brims with hope. Yeah. So, for example, Arm- what about Armageddon, man? 
you know, Armageddon's in the Bible one time. Uh, Armageddon, it, the, 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 the picture there is you have these frogs, frogs, three frogs, from the beast, the empire, from the false prophet, the propaganda arm of the empire, uh, from the dragon, the accuser, Hasatan, the Satan himself, are going out and deceiving the generals and the leaders of the armies of the nations. You know, every war is waged on either side from a perspective of a defensive war. I mean, Germany invades Poland to defend German citizens that were being persecuted in Poland. That's a defensive action. And so it's the easiest thing, I suppose, for these frog demons to do is to deceive people in the necessity of war. And because of that, the nations of the world gather at Armageddon. What is Armageddon? It's the Valley of Megiddo. And we go and we lead pilgrim tours in the Holy Land, which we will do our 18th one next month. We always take them to Megiddo. Now, if you're, you're, you're driving along the plain, the plain of Jezreel, it's beautiful, lush, flat farmland. And then there's this mountain. This big old mountain. And then you find out that is not a natural, it's not an extinct volcano. It's not a product of some geological phenomenon. It is the result of 26 civilizations built upon one another. In other words, there was a city destruction, building again, city destruction, building again, city destruction, building again, city destruction, building again, 26 times. Because Megiddo had the misfortune. It's, it's a lovely setting with a, 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 a water source there and it's a very fertile land, but it's also the primary uh, thoroughfare between the northern, I'm using biblical language, the biblical empire, the northern empires of Assyria and Babylon and the southern empire of Egypt. And it's where it became a battlefield. It was like, you know, every hundred years a major battle and poor old Megiddo would get destroyed again. And they rebuild and get destroyed. So it becomes a tell is what they call it. That's the archaeological term. So that Armageddon is a literary device that is to invoke in the mind of the reader battlefield. And so they were gathered to the place called Omaha. If I say Omaha Beach, you don't immediately think of a pig. You know, you think, okay, that's that's war, that's horror. That's bodies strewn on a beach. They gather to a place called, I have to use terms, I don't know, Gettysburg, Flanders Field. Because if we follow the way of the beast, it always leads. Armageddon is always looming, it's always a possibility, it's never an inevitability. There are two roads. You go the way of the beast, one way or another, it always leads to what Berlin looked like in June of 1945. You ever seen those? It was all bombed out and burned out. That you follow that kind of voice of nationalism, that kind of the, the, the propaganda, the imperial agenda of a militaristic nation. It always leads to that. But there is another way to swim in that. And it, it doesn't lead to Armageddon. It leads to the Crystal City. It doesn't lead to the Lake of Fire. It leads to the New Jerusalem. What we are doing as pastors and leaders and church people is, is calling people away that's why it's such a tragedy when you try to conflate church and state, especially when the state is an empire. Sure, it's like you might as well try to conflate the New Jerusalem and the Lake of Fire. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You've got to pick one or the other. Yeah. And so the hope I have is that Jesus is building his church. The church is not the idea of you know, the Vatican. The church is Jesus' idea. And he said he would build it. And he said the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And so that's the hope I have. And I see something of our task as to simply 
be present in this world. After lunch, I'll talk about uh, the dreams that I'm dreaming. And I'm going to give you about 12 dreams I have for the church. So we can talk about churches. It'll also relate to hope. But I see the book of Revelation as ultimately the most hopeful book in the Bible. And I think it's... I think for Christians that happen to be situated, hosted by a empire, it's always the most vital book. But you've got to wrestle it away from people who have done terrible damage with it. If I had my way, and I won't have my way, but if I had my way, preachers would have to take out a special license before they could preach from the book of Revelation. And you get the 65. No, no, single, no, there's a whole special license to, to operate that baby. Background check. Background check, yeah, and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately, I find the book of Revelation uh, about Jesus and his church, brimming with hope, providing an eschatological vision that we can come to the new Jerusalem, the garden metropolis of the Lamb, as an alternative to the world of Armageddon, the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, the lake of fire. But they exist simultaneously until the perusing, until the summing up of all things, until the final appearance of Christ, where this thing is summed up however that happens. I don't really exactly know. But until then, they're going to exist simultaneously. And I think the church has to resist uh, leaning too fervently into the language of change the world. If we talk about, if we say, okay, our task is to change the world, then I think it's almost inevitable that you were seduced by employing the instruments that, that we imagine can do that the most swiftly. This was the third temptation in the wilderness. When Jesus is shown the kingdoms of the world and their glory in a moment of time up on a mountain, and the Satan says, you know, I, I, I run this show. I'll give it to you. You just bow down and worship. Now, how are we, how are we to understand that? We can imagine that... that that the first of do we think that the devil came to Jesus, you know, red suit, pitchfork, long pointy tail. Hi, I'm Lucifer. I'm here to tempt you. Show what again. No, I. The devil came to Jesus the same way the devil comes to you and I. Disguises our own ideas. And Jesus is he's about to launch his ministry. How shall we do it? Well, there's the temptation to do what was anticipated. That he would follow the pattern set forth by the proto-messiahs, David and Judah Maccabee. And that is to raise an army and to drive out the Romans, kill the bad guys. And then, and then Jesus would become Jesus the Great. And Jesus, I mean, Jesus is Jesus. He could get an army and not just drive them out of Rome, he could march all the way to Rome. Depose Tiberius. Become Jesus the Great. Except that's meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Nothing ever. And Jesus perceives that and says, "Oh, this is get behind me." Say, this is a temptation to bow down to the devil. It is written, "You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve." It was a temptation to bypass the cross and go for the sword, and find the most expedient, as we think of it, way to change the world. So this is this is how churches get seduced in politics. Yeah. And becoming religious wings of various political parties because they see that as the most expedient and pragmatic way to change the world. But ultimately, it's always a betrayal of Christ. So the task of the church is not to change the world directly, but to be the world as already changed by Christ. To simply live it out. Just to simply be that society. Just to be it. So we're not going to change the world. We're just going to be the world already changed. Right here, we will, here will be the new Jerusalem. I know, I know the lake of fire is out there. I'm not sure what to do about it. Other than to make the new Jerusalem so beautiful, so other, so alternative, so alluring, that every so often we go, Hey! It's really nice in here. Seriously. You should check it out. Rather than saying, Okay, we're going we're gonna to mount a campaign and we're going to invade the lake of fire. and Change it. You can't change it that way. They have to come. We have to call. But I'll, co- I'll close this session with a quote from Stanley Hirewas, probably my favorite theologian, certainly my favorite political and church theologian. As far as you know, theology of church and theology of politics, my favorite theologian is Stanley Hirewas, who says, uh, 
the, the primary, the first role of the church is to make the world work. The first role of the church, the first vocation, the first task of the church is to make the world the world. Meaning that the church is to be significantly other enough that there is a distinction between the world and the church. And I'm afraid that too often, and I'm critiquing myself here, that uh, is there, I mean, there has to be more than just how we spend our Sunday morning. (laughs) If that's the only difference there is, then that's not nearly enough. So the first task is to make the world the world. So that there really is the two phenomenons of the world. Amen. We have a little bit of time.